This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Welcome to Knowledge at Wharton. I'm Angie Bassini. Have you ever wanted to change something in your life, but you just can't seem to get started? Or maybe you started only to lose all momentum and roll to a stop. My guest today is Wharton professor Katie Milkman, a behavioral scientist who has spent most of her career studying the strategies that help people create lasting, effective change, whether that's quitting a bad habit like procrastination or achieving a big life goal like saving for retirement. Thankfully, you don't have to devote years of your life to uncovering the secrets because Dr. Milkman has done all the research and she's here to share it with us. She's talking to us today about her new book, which is titled How to Change, The Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. Katie, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you here. First, I want to give our listeners a little more background about you. In addition to being a professor, you're also the co-founder and co-director of the Behavior Change for Good Initiative, which is a research center here at Wharton. You've advised large corporations, including Google and Walmart, and you even host your own podcast called Choiceology. Now you've added book author to your resume. Why did you choose this topic about change? It's a great question. And honestly, my research has always been about change, but I think the moment when I realized I hoped I'd have enough to contribute to write a book because it felt like it could really have an impact was uh, about a decade ago when I was an assistant professor here at Wharton and I was sitting at a lecture at the medical school and I saw a graph that has been burned into my brain ever since. And it was a graph showing the percentage of premature deaths in this country that are due to behaviors that could be changed. And I was just blown away to discover that 40% of premature deaths are due to behaviors like what we eat, um, whether we smoke, whether we drink, whether we are physically active, whether we make safe decisions when getting into vehicles and so on. And I just couldn't believe how big the opportunity was there to change lives for the better. And it also made it clear that even though I haven't seen a graph that's similar for decisions about savings or education, it's clear that these little things really add up. And that's what I've been studying throughout my career is what is it that we can do to help people create daily changes that accumulate to have big positive effects. Um, once I realized how huge that impact could be socially, then I was sort of committed. And, and I created a, the center that you mentioned um, at Penn. I co-founded it with Angela Duckworth to try to really supercharge the the speed at which we could generate insights. And I felt ready a couple of years ago to sit down and write the book that I hoped would change lives. You have a colleague and a friend here at Penn, Angela Duckworth. She wrote the bestseller Grit, which is a book about resilience. She also wrote the foreword for your book. And there's a quote in there from her that I really love. I kept going back to. And she said, every book is like a conversation with its author. You have to be picky about the books you read. You want a conversation partner who can teach you something you didn't know. That's her quote. So it makes me think if your readers are in a conversation with you, what is the key takeaway that you want to give, leave them with from this book? One of the things that I've learned over the course of doing research on this topic is that a lot of organizations and individuals that are looking to create change just reach for sort of 
off-the-shelf solutions that sound nice that have been written about in other bestsellers before, um, books about mm-hmm. um, setting big audacious goals, for instance, or visualizing success. And that sort of sounds great, but what's missing is a real appreciation of what actually is the barrier to change in your particular situation, because what's going to work depends on what's holding you back. And so that's like a key lesson. So let me give you a couple concrete examples. If someone isn't taking their medications regularly, their prescription that will say prevent a a fatal heart attack from recurring, um, well, you can't have two fatal heart attacks, but it'll prevent that that Mm -hmm. second heart attack, which could prove fatal. Um, You might not be able to get them to take those medications that they're forgetting about by simply saying, hey, set a big audacious goal. If forgetting is the barrier, then you need to solve for that particular problem, probably with really memorable reminders. Uh, On the flip side, if you have a challenge of getting to the gym more regularly or staying off social media when you're tempted to do so, and it's really because the thing that's not good for you is so much more alluring, then you have a completely different kind of problem. You don't need reminders. You don't need, need, again, big audacious goals. You need to find a way to make it so that the instantly gratifying choice is aligned with your goals. So my book is all about trying to figure out what is the barrier to change and match a solution to it that science has proven can be effective, because that yields far better results than a sort of one-size-fits-all uh, shiny, attractive idea um, solution approach that's been taken traditionally. I like this tailored approach. And also when you mentioned audacious goals, it made me think about the pandemic and how I think at the start of it, many of us had some very audacious goals, uh, like we're going to bake bread every day or we're going to you know, learn train for a marathon, learn a new language. And, and I think now a year later, some of us have our goals have shrunk a little bit to, to fit our containers. Um, so let's let's get let's get deeper into this book. Um, in the chat, in each chapter, you present us with uh, the common obstacles to change, our behavioral obstacles, and then you offer these solutions, ways ways to hurdle these obstacles. And you use a lot of uh, research, you draw on a lot of research, a lot of real world examples, but you also are very candid in sharing your own experiences. You talked about graduate school and how sometimes you find yourself putting off studying or exercising in favor of things you'd prefer to do, like reading your favorite fiction novels. And you talked about overcoming that through a device called temptation bundling. What is that? How does that work? Yay, I'm so glad you asked about temptation bundling because this is one of my favorite things I've ever studied and indeed came from my own life. So what I realized when I was struggling to get myself to the gym at the end of a long day in class, even though I knew exercise would ultimately make me feel better, more energetic, I just couldn't motivate myself. And I was simultaneously tempted to dive into these. In my case, you know, it was novels. But for some people, it's binge watching TV. And P.S., that's a problem for me sometimes, too. Um, I realized I could solve both of those problems at once. All I had to do was only let myself read the next chapter in whatever novel I was enjoying while I was exercising. And actually, I, I turned to audiobooks. That's how this works for me. So I was only allowed to listen to the next chapter in my audiobook while I was working out at the gym. And suddenly what happened is I found myself craving trips to the gym at the end of a long day to find out what happened next in my latest thriller, enjoying my workouts because I didn't even notice the pain of exercising. I was having so much fun listening to my favorite character and the plot unfold. And I felt no guilt whatsoever while I was indulging in this entertainment that used to take me away from my studying because now I was 
is doing it uh, in, in alignment with my big goal of uh, getting to the gym. So um, I found temptation bundling to be this incredibly useful personal tool. And I've since studied it and proven that it can help other people exercise more as well. If uh, you link something tempting you enjoy to to exercise like I did. Um, but I've also seen and talked to people who use it to solve all sorts of different challenges with self-control in their lives. So it's not just about exercise, though I think it's really well suited to that. But you could Mm -hmm. imagine, for instance, only letting yourself pick up your favorite treat at your favorite um, coffee shop on your way to the library to hit the books, or only letting yourself binge watch TV or listen to your favorite podcast while doing household chores. Um, Just a couple of examples of different ways you can temptation bundle so that something that you'd normally find unpleasant or not look forward to or even possibly dread suddenly actually becomes a hook and you're excited to do it and you don't waste time on uh, some some other indulgence. I'll tell you about my own temptation bundling. Years ago, I was trying to increase my daily water intake like many people. And I decided uh, before I could have my enjoy my morning cup of coffee, I would have to get one glass of water down. And it worked. And I still do that even today, even though I'd much rather go straight for the coffee. Right. Well, so you're you're talking about impulse control. Are there some other commitment devices maybe that um, you can draw out from the book to tell us about, about ways to help us get into these good habits? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that research has proven can be really effective is sort of the flip side of what we just discussed. So we just talked about a way that you can um, give yourself a temptation or a treat. I sometimes call it the Mary Poppins effect. Use fun to pull yourself towards doing something that is good for you. But the flip side is that you can also use the stick as well as the carrot. So you can actually set up systems that will punish you sounds a little bit crazy, but actually works if you don't achieve your goals so that the cost of failure becomes so high that you won't procrastinate, you won't put it off, you'll be able to control your impulses because it will be so valuable to you to do so. So let me give you an example of um, what that might look like. There's a company called Stick, um, S-T-I-C-K, K, the extra K is for contract. They sell commitment contracts. And you can go on this website, tell the website a goal that you're hoping to achieve, say, exercising three times a week or, um, you know, cutting out caffeine from your life, whatever it might be over the next two weeks. You have to define the time frame. And then you also tell the site a referee who will hold you accountable and you give them your credit card and choose a charitable organization that will get money from you. And you set the stakes. How much if you fail to achieve your goal as reported on by this referee? And it might sound counterintuitive that you would voluntarily penalize yourself, but this is what other organizations are constantly doing, right? When when government is trying to take care of us, they set speed limits so that we don't make the wrong decision and go too fast and get into a fatal accident or, um, you know, limit heroin use. And these are the kinds of rules and and regulations that are placed on us by benevolent policymakers, and we can actually place them on ourselves in order to constrain our future impulses as well. So I think commitment devices, this is a name for this kind of tool, can be really valuable in in dealing with this impulse control problem and are probably underused because most people think it sounds so crazy, but they've proven really effective. So um, there are randomized controlled trials showing that this kind of a commitment device where you can put money on the line that you'll you'll give up if you fail to achieve a goal has been proven to increase people's 
success quitting smoking by 30% when they have access to a commitment tool like this. Um, similar commitment devices can be used to increase savings. Um, that might sound counterintuitive too, like, wait, you'd fine yourself for not saving. But the way those tend to be structured is not as monetary commitments, but rather um, you put money into an account and then that account locks and you cannot access the account and withdraw money until you reach a predetermined date you've chosen or a goal. So those are different ways we can constrain our future selves with the knowledge that we might have impulse challenges that will keep us from achieving our goals if we don't set up those constraints. We can be our own benevolent policymakers. Exactly. <laughs> well, in the second half of the book, you focus on some of the common behaviors that keep us from our goals. And two of them are very simple, very common. Forgetfulness, which I love that you call flaking out and laziness. Um, can you talk about those things and what are some of the ways we can turn that around and, and put some good, replace some of those bad habits with good habits? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, forgetfulness is one that I think tends to be underappreciated. Most people think like, oh, that's so silly. Like that doesn't really prevent us from achieving our goals. But it turns out we are more forgetful than we appreciate. And it's bigger, a bigger barrier than we appreciate. Um, anywhere from 40 to 70% of us uh, flake out on on a given goal that we set. Um, and often that has to do with simply not remembering that we set it in the first place or that we need to actually follow through and say vote or get a vaccination um, or hit the gym or, um, or do something else that's important to achieving that goal. So how can we combat forgetting? Um, one thing we can do is actually try to use the kinds of tools that memory champions use in order to ingrain information and, and use those kinds of tools to stick knowledge in our heads and, and make sure that we'll remember at the right moment. So one thing that's proven really effective is something um, called making an implementation intention. So it's really simple. Instead of making a plan, which by the way is helpful and saying, you know, I intend to exercise, you say, I intend to exercise every time um, it's five o'clock and it's a weekday, uh, and then you say, you know, and here's where I'll do it. I will, you know, go to the gym down the street from me, and you make that more concrete. You can hold yourself accountable by telling someone else you'll do it, and when you have that form of the plan that says sort of, if this happens, then I will follow through, you're actually a lot less likely to flake out. You don't want to be inconsistent with a concrete commitment rather than sort of a vague intention, but also you're more likely to remember because you've linked it to a cue, which is, the time when you intend to do it and on the days of the week. So now that cue is a trigger to your memory. This is how memory works. Cues recall memories, and you're more likely to actually follow through. You can do this with one-time actions. You can do it with repeated actions. Um, I've proven that it can be an effective tool for getting people to go and um, get flu shots or colonoscopies. Some of my collaborators have looked at how effective it can be for increasing voting. Uh, and there's other little memory tricks throughout the book as well. I will say the the research that you cited in the book about voting really s stuck out to me because it said that they surveyed people who said, yes, I plan to vote. And then on the, uh, the follow-up survey said, oh, I just forgot. And you think to yourself, how could you forget to vote? But what you're pointing out is this is not an everyday activity. So perhaps if you, more than just setting a reminder in your phone, you'll say, I plan to go vote on my lunch break at this particular polling location, and I will get, get it done at this particular time. And the more details that you create in that plan, the less likely you will forget it, correct? 
It was beautifully said. Thank you for summarizing that so nicely. And yeah, I, I find that voting research uh, incredibly important. And it's just, it's startling how big of a barrier this is and how often we underweight it. And we think that's not, that's not going to be my obstacle. Yeah. Well, let's talk about chapter six. That chapter is titled self-confidence. And in it, you talk about how sometimes we're held back from achieving our goals or the things we want to change simply because we don't believe that we are capable doing it. Um, I think this is a particularly important subject for women who sometimes are socialized to believe that they can't dream big or can't achieve something. Um, so what are some of the practical ways that we can build up our self-confidence that will lead us to that change in our lives? Yeah, it's a great question. One of the really interesting ideas that I have come across in this area in the last few years came from a former Wharton postdoc um, who's now about to start a faculty job at at our, um, our peer institution, the Kellogg School of Management, Lauren Eskris Winkler had this insight that we're constantly bombarding people with advice about how to achieve their goals when they're struggling in particular, and that it's actually pretty demoralizing when somebody comes up and sort of puts their arm around you and starts giving you tips on how to be more successful in a domain where you've been working hard and haven't been reaching your potential as far as you can tell. Um, and she thought, you know, what if we have the script wrong when we're trying to help people? What if that's exactly the way to harm confidence to the extent that confidence is an important part of goal achievement? And what if we flip the script and instead we actually asked people who were struggling if they could give us some advice and give some advice to a peer who's not even quite as far along as they are towards that goal. Maybe the act of, of encouraging people to give advice to others, to be mentors, to be coaches, could be effective by making them feel like, wow, someone believes I can do it and then I've got what it takes and will boost their confidence and motivation. At the same time, it has some other really lovely ingredients like getting you to introspect and think about what has worked for you in the past and maybe once you say to someone else, you should do this. There's a saying is believing effect where, you know, if I've, if I've encouraged you to do it, how am I not going to follow through myself? So I really like this idea that by coaching others, by mentoring others, by offering advice to others, we um, can both build our own confidence because now these other people are looking up at us and saying, like, you're my role model. You're giving me this advice. And we start to feel like we need to grow into those shoes, but also because it, it can give us insights we might not otherwise have dredged up. So um, I think advice giving is really powerful. And I actually will say that uh, as a woman, one of the things that startled me when I uh, got sort of kept advancing in my career is how hard it can be to say no to all of the things that are mm -hmm. sort of thrown at you that maybe aren't totally worth your time. And I learned from research done by Linda Babcock at Carnegie Mellon University, sort of a world-renowned economist who studied this is a common problem for women is that we aren't confident enough to say no to some of those, she calls them non-promotable tasks, tasks that won't mm -hmm. help us advance in our career, but that need to get done by someone. Women end up doing them more often. And, and Linda talked about um, forming a no club, a group of women who advise one another on how to say no. And I ended up forming one on her advice with a couple of peer um, scholars at, at peer institutions. And I have actually found, while I get a huge amount out of 
the advice I receive because it's solicited advice. So it doesn't, it doesn't mm-hmm. hurt my confidence. I've actually gotten a, a tremendous amount also out of giving advice because it's built my confidence that I can figure out for myself. Oh yeah. Like this is where the line is between what's worth doing and what's not. The act of giving advice helps reinforce to yourself. Hey, I know this. Hey, I can exactly. do this. I've done this. I know what I'm talking about. It helps ground you in, in your own knowledge. You've got it. And and the idea it, that that gave me in, and that Lauren's work, Lauren S. Chris Winkler's work on the power of advice giving was, you know, maybe when we have goals, an effective thing we can do is think about forming clubs with other people who have similar goals so we can each advise one another when when somebody's looking for tips, looking for guidance, uh, and then we can build our own confidence in the act of, of coaching, um, as well as getting tips, which can be valuable from other people when we need them most. So, um, so I think that's one way we can build confidence. And, and another element of confidence is seeing other people like you achieving similar goals. And so this kind of an advice club could, could reinforce your confidence in those two ways. I, I like the idea that the next club I form should not be a book club. It should be a no club. I'm going <laughs> to think about that. So let's talk about the final lesson in your book. Um, and this is about, okay, making change is not a one and done, that you want your changes to be permanent or you're going to go back to the same habits you've been trying to avoid or change. Um, you have this great metaphor in the last chapter of your book about managing change like you manage a chronic disease. I thought that was really interesting very interesting metaphor. What do you mean by that? It's not, it's not the most positive metaphor, but I really felt like it worked. <laughs> um, I think, right. um, you know, one of the mistakes that I made when I first started studying durable behavior change, you know, what could we do that would stick was I had this fantasy that we could develop really creative interventions using the tools of psychology and economics where we'd put someone through a program and, and give them new tools and they'd, um, you know, do it for a month. And all of a sudden they'd be set for life. You know, we'd, we'd teach them how to build an exercise habit or a medication adherence routine or um, a productivity routine at work. And we just, you know, coach them basically for a month, set them on their way and everything would be better. And, and things like that just kept failing when I tried them, they'd work for a month and we'd let go. And then things would regress. And I called a colleague in the medical school here, Kevin Volpe, who's a really brilliant um, doctor and also yes, studies. We know Dr. Change. Volpe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I said, Kevin, why does this keep failing? You know, like what's going on? Why can't we make it stick? And he said, well, maybe we have the wrong model of change. Like maybe he, he's really the one who gave me this metaphor. He's like, why do we think that change is something that's curable, like a rash. Maybe it's more like a chronic disease. It's not like these things that we're trying to change, the the impulsivity feature of human nature or um, or confidence or, uh, you know, forgetfulness. It's not like those things can be cured. They're just built into us. Right. So why don't we try to create more interventions and tools that people can carry with them and keep using over and over instead of trying to give them a program for a month and then abandon ship, right? If we're treating diabetes, we wouldn't give someone insulin for a month and expect them to be cured. And so I just thought that was such a powerful insight. It's completely (laughs) changed the way I'm studying and during change and trying to go about creating it. Um, And I think, you know, it's an important lesson I hope readers will take away from the book too, is there are many tools to solve problems in the book, but they're really not going to work if they're just applied once. They need to be used continuously because change isn't something you can work on for a month and expect to magically endure. 
Right. And you're you're asking us to really shift our culture because we do live in a culture of instant gratification. If I do this one thing, I will get this reward. And what you're trying to tell folks here is that if, if you really want enduring change, it's there's some maintenance required. You got to keep doing the same thing that got you to where you want to be. So it's it's true, although hopefully um, many of the tools in the book are not. The, the maintenance component hopefully won't be unpleasant. So, for instance, if you think about something like temptation bundling, it's not such a dreary thing to imagine that for the rest of your life when you work out, you'll enjoy a, a tempting audio novel or binge watching a TV show you're particularly enjoying. So so I just want to emphasize that the maintenance doesn't have to be a drag. And a big lesson of the book is to make things uh, to make things work, to ensure that we can overcome these barriers, we actually often want to use fun, and uh, and so it it can be it can be enjoyable to create lasting change. All right, I'm going to hold you to that. It's going to be fun. All right, so in the interest of fun, I've created some little speed round scenarios for you. Are you ready? I'm ready. Right, I'm going to get I'm going to give you three scenarios of change. They're pretty common. We've all heard them, or even maybe said them ourselves. And then I'm going to ask you to fix it for me. So the first one is, uh, I really want to start exercising regularly. I know it's good for me, but I hate it. I'd rather just sit on the couch and eat potato chips. How do I get there? (laughs) This is when you've got to find a way to make exercise enjoyable. So we already talked about temptation bundling. That's one strategy. But to to not be too redundant, let me give you a different way to make it fun. Um, I've done some research with uh, Rachel Gershon at at UCSD um, and Cindy Kreider at uh, at Washington University showing that people will go to the gym more regularly, about 30% more regularly, if you give them a gym buddy and only give them rewards if they go to the gym with that buddy, they go about 30% more than if you reward them the same amount going for going alone. Um, which I think is really important. And one of the reasons that that happens, that people, even though it's harder to earn money, the same amount of money for a gym visit in this constrained situation where you only earn it if your friend goes at the same time, they're holding you accountable and you enjoy the exercise more because there's someone else who you're doing it with. So as soon as we get out of this pandemic and can have those gym buddies again, uh, I think making it social is a really powerful way you can make exercise more enjoyable. It's, it's another form of temptation bundling. Well, that's a very good option. All right. I've got scenario number two for you. I really want to learn a second language. I know Spanish would be so useful at my job and in my social life. I, I downloaded the apps. I, I did the little program, but I'm still not there yet. And frankly, between my work obligations and childcare, I just don't have the time to learn a second language. Okay, well, it seems like, first of all, I'm not sure you're quite motivated. You're not quite over the hump of deciding that you want to do it. (laughs) I'm giving you you... all the excuses. (laughs) You are giving me But if you really want to do it, then the first thing to sit down and do here, it sounds like, uh, is make a plan. Where are you? you got to figure out a way that you are going to wedge it into your schedule. And probably you're going to want to make that one bite-sized so that um, the, the commitment doesn't feel too large and distant. Like, is it an hour a week that you want to commit? Carve out and what's the when and where? and make your if, um, if it's five o'clock on Thursday, then I will be sitting at my computer doing the Spanish practice plan so that you've got your cue, you won't flake out, and, um, and that bite-sized goal will be a little bit more achievable and, and you'll be able to get it into your schedule. Okay, so here's my last one. I think it's a little tougher. I hate my job. I don't want to just change jobs. I want to change careers completely. But it's such a scary idea. I don't even know where to start. I'm too old to change jobs. I I just can't. I can't do this. I have to just stay here and be stuck. 
All right, this, out, is a, Katie. this is a tough one, but I think this calls for um, what Angela Duckworth and Katie Mayer, who's a doctoral student here um, at Wharton, and I call copy and paste. So um, often we take cues from watching the people around us and seeing what they can accomplish and what's doable for them. And so our peers can teach us really important lessons. And that sometimes just happens by osmosis. We look around and see what they're up to and we we emulate them, but we found that people can get farther faster if we just tell them, hey, copy and paste deliberately, go find someone who has achieved the thing you want to achieve but aren't sure how to achieve and interview them. Like, what are you doing? What strategies are you using? What worked for you? And then try to deliberately copy and paste what's worked for them into your life. So in this case, I'd say you need to go find somebody at a similar career stage who has made the job transition that you're feeling you can't make and say, like, how'd you do it? How did you up yourself? Can you tell me what got you going and how, how you accomplished this? And then try to really deliberately copy and paste those tactics if they feel doable for you. And you might have to ask a few people before you find one that seems like, hey, you know, that could be suited to my life, that approach that you took that got you out of this rut and into a new job you were excited about but but once you find the right person hopefully you can copy and paste and that'll give you the information you're lacking right now and hopefully the confidence you're lacking which i think are the two key barriers standing in the way of of making the move great advice katie thank you for being with me today thank you so much for having me this was really fun once again her book is called how to change you can pick it up in digital or hard copy at your favorite bookseller if you enjoyed this podcast, you can find more just like it on our website, where you can read all our latest research in business. I'm Angie Bassini. Thanks for listening. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.